This is a Federal News Network podcast. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is about to launch a program called the Deferred Subject Matter Eligibility Response Pilot. It lets certain patent applicants hold off on time-consuming answers to questions early in the patent process. For what this is all about and why it matters, we turn to the Deputy Commissioner for Patents, Bob Barr. Mr. Barr, good to have you on. Hi, thank you. And this is a pretty arcane topic here and very lawyerly. So rather than try to explain it, that's why we're having you on to explain it. And just give us a little bit of background on the basic steps of the patent process and what you're trying to fix here. So basically, when an application is filed at the PTO, we examine it to make sure it's entitled to um, meet the statutory conditions for patentability. Primarily, those are whether it is eligible for patenting, it is the type of thing for which we will grant a patent, um, whether it is new and not obvious over that which is already known, and whether the disclosure of the application is clear and sufficient to allow others to know what was being invented. In this process, most of the work involves determining whether it is new and not obvious over that which is already known. Um, That makes up the most of the work. And the process here is usually iterative. There is some back and forth between an examiner and an applicant before an application is finally approved for patenting or finally rejected. Now, as further background, we have engaged in something we call compact prosecution since at least the 1960s. And that is that we examine for all of these patentability requirements in every time we look at the application. And what has happened here is that over the last 15 years, there have been some court decisions that have made that first question, whether something is eligible for patenting, more complicated than it has been in the past. And this has led some to question whether it might make some sense to do the other analysis first, that is whether it's novel and not obvious over what is already known and whether the disclosure is sufficiently clear before getting into the question of whether or not it's actually eligible for patenting or whether it's the type of thing for which we grant patents. That would save examiners and certainly applicants the problems of actually having to address that issue unless it actually comes up and matters. So this pilot tests that premise, namely, we're going to still have examiners um, do any um, eligibility for patenting um, analysis, but we will let applicants decide whether they want to defer responding to that until they have dealt with all of the other matters that they need to deal with to get a patent, namely determining whether or not the invention is novel and not obvious over what's already known. And this pilot is launched in response to some inquiries from a couple of senators. So it sounds like maybe the inventor community was unhappy with that particular aspect of that preliminary determination process. Yes, we have received a number of comments from the public that considering applications for patent eligibility or whether or not they're the types of things for which we grant patents has become more complicated now, and maybe it makes sense to do the analysis on whether it's novel or not obvious first. And this obviously has gotten the attention of several senators who did write us a letter suggesting that we see whether or not it makes sense to allow applicants to defer the analysis of whether or not something is eligible for patenting until the other matters are cleaned up, namely whether or not something is new and not obvious over that which is already known. Right. So you could get an application in for wrapping chewing gum in silver colored paper and that would touch off this process. Now, is this open to all patent applicants or it looks like it has to be at the discretion of the examiner? Yes. The way the program works is there's a few thresholds that have to be met. First, 
the um, application would have to raise um, these patent eligibility issues. While it is something that is very concerning to um, stakeholders, this question of whether something is the type of things for which we grant patents, it only comes up in fewer than 10% of applications. So it does not come up as often as people might think. So first, unless an application raises those issues to the examiner, there's no reason for it to be in this pilot. And second, the application would have to raise issues other than eligibility for patenting, because if that's the only issue, then it makes sense to go right to that issue. And next, since this is a pilot, we have allowed examiners to um, volunteer for the pilot. So we feel that we are getting enough interest from examiners that we will have enough examiners to test this pilot in various technologies. So what the examiner would do would be to, in the initial action that they send to the applicant, they would indicate that this case is eligible for inclusion in the pilot. And then it's voluntarily on the part of the applicant. The applicant can say that they want to join in as part of this pilot, or the applicant can just do the normal um, examination um, prosecution process where they respond to all of the rejections. We're speaking with Bob Barr. He's the Deputy Commissioner for Patents at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And how is the pilot being launched pursuant, if it proves successful, to a requested change in statute? for patent law? Well, this actually wouldn't require a change in the patent laws. It would just require a change in our examination processes. Like I mentioned earlier, it has been at least since the 1960s, we've engaged in a um, compact prosecution where we examine for everything all of the time. The patent laws do require that we examine applications for patents, but they don't specify that we have to do everything in every response to the applicant. We simply have done that for many years since it has historically been the most effective way of doing it. But this pilot will test whether there is a better approach in certain applications, namely the ones that raise what we call patent eligibility issues or issues of whether or not something is the type of thing for which you can get a patent. And what are your measures for knowing that the pilot is working or that this change is warranted? We have many applications that were, say, examined last year or the years before that have been examined under the classic compact prosecution measure. And we will know which applications are in this pilot, namely those that the examiner has issued an invitation to the applicant to join and the applicant has joined. We will simply measure how long it has taken for um, the pendency of the applications done the old-fashioned way and the applications done under this pilot, and we can see how many iterations it has taken to get the application to the end of the process, namely when it has been approved for patenting or whether the applicant has decided not to go any further with the application. And we can simply compare these two groups to see which one is more efficient. So pendency, that is how long it takes the whole process, that's always an issue you're looking for ways to trim, fair to say? Yes, we look to trim two things. The first is pendency, overall pendency. Um, currently, overall pendency is less than 24 months or less than two years. We also want to see, for efficiency, how many back and forths is needed. Obviously, the fewer back and forths between the applicant and the examiner, it's less costly on both the USPTO and for applicants. So we're looking to minimize both of those. And what about the quality of patents? Do you expect that this could help increase that measure also? Well, we have an Office of Patent Quality Assurance, and we do random reviews of applications, and we would certainly include these applications in those random reviews so we can check to make sure that there's no change in quality, or namely that there is a change. If any change, it's a positive change in quality, or at least not a negative change in quality, but we will certainly look for that. And this pilot runs from 
February 1st, I guess, to what, the end of June, correct? Yes, it runs from February 1st until the end of July. All right. And how many applicants potentially could come through that would be subject to this in that time? Would you get a good enough database in that amount of time? Well, we feel that we have enough examiners who have expressed interest in the pilot that we should have enough, I'll say, invitations to applicants, and then hopefully we will have enough applicants take us up on it so that we'll have a good enough number. Obviously, if we don't have enough numbers to draw any conclusion, we can always extend the pilot or um, run the pilot again to make sure that we do have enough applications to make a judgment as to whether or not this is a more efficient process. And if you decide that this is a good process that you want to keep permanently, would that require rulemaking, or can you just go ahead and say this is the way it is? Uh, I believe that we can go ahead and say that this is the way it is. It should be simply a um, memo or an instructions to examiners to examine it in this manner. We could check, but if there is any rule change, it would be a um, fairly minor one just to um, our internal operations at the PTO. All right. Bob Barr is the Deputy Commissioner for Patents at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe a hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it You were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Looking for holiday gifts for less? Come to Ross and say yeah to making your dollar stretch on name brand toys, clothes, and gifts. Get the gift of savings this holiday from Ross. Yes for less. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.